help support the Jiminy Cricket podcast and the Disney Chris website by becoming a Patreon subscriber. By joining our illustrious roster of supporters, you will receive exclusive rewards every month, including audio content, Disney video commentaries, and an exclusive Patreon subscribers-only podcast called Down the Rabbit Hole. Be sure to check out our new donation levels and special rewards at www.patreon.com slash DisneyChris. Jiminy Crickets! Jiminy Cricket is the name I'm a happy-go-lucky fellow Always getting in wrong For singing my song A merry old soul am I Jiminy Cricket is the name I'll be hanging around this evening I'll be tipping my hat And telling you that Jiminy Cricket is the name Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 129 of the Jiminy Crickets podcast. How are you doing, Ruthie? I'm doing great, Chris. How are you? I'm doing perfectly well, (laughs) because today we're going to talk about Walt Disney's 20th full-length animated feature, The Aristocats, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary on December 24th this year. And it also just so happens to be Ruthie's all-time favorite Walt Disney animated feature. Yes. So this is going to be a really fun show. But before we get to that, we have a very special announcement. The Jiminy Crickets podcast proudly endorses Concierge Vacation Planners, a Disney-authorized specialty vacation planning service. Concierge doesn't just book your trip. They walk you through the entire process, helping you plan out every detail, one-on-one, to make the very most out of your vacation while saving you both time and money. And the best part is, they charge nothing for their services. You will get the exact same pricing as if you booked your vacation directly through Disney. But in using Concierge expertise, you've got the added bonus of having your very own personal Disney Guru Planner by your side. Both Ruthie and I are also satisfied customers, and we just can't recommend them enough. Visit their website at www.concierge.com. That's www.concierge.com, as in mouse ears. So when you book your next Disney vacation, be it Walt Disney World, Disneyland, the Disney Cruise Line, or many of the other Disney destinations available worldwide, Contact Concierge Vacation Planners, and be sure to tell them Disney Chris sent you. Walt Disney Pictures presents a classic case of catnapping. They're gone! That's terrible. What's going to happen to us? The culprit is on the loose. The cats are on the run. Everybody out of here fast. But help is on the way. Charge! It's adventure. Surprises. Romance. And music. This is outrageous. Crazy. It's scandalous. But most of all, it's quiet. It's delightful Disney fun. 
It's Walt Disney's most cataclysmic comedy ever. The Aristocats. Meow. So today we're going to talk about The Aristocats, which is sort of a transitional film in several ways because it is the last animated feature that was approved personally by Walt. He was there in the beginning stages, the very beginning stages of its production, and it was something Walt had put on the um, to-do list personally, but it is also the very first animated feature that for the most part was done without him, and it came out a few years after his passing. He had died in December of 1966. This came out nearly exactly four years later. The Jungle Book, Walt was heavily involved with, and pretty much the, the production was just wrapping up when Walt Disney passed away, and it came out only a few months after he had passed away in 1967. So most people consider that to be Walt Disney's final animated feature. But in a loose, loosey-goosey sort of way, this one could also sort of be considered that because it really is the last one that Walt Disney was personally involved with in any capacity. Yeah. Um, but they really went against all that Walt wanted, as you'll find out, which is interesting. They took it in a completely different direction than what Walt had originally planned for this, which is sort of a, an interesting thing because for the most part, the the studio was all about what would Walt do at that time. Everything had to fit the criteria of what would Walt do in those early years right after he had passed away. But this one seemed to sort of get away with going against what Walt would have done in a lot of ways, which is also interesting. Yeah. And it, also, another interesting thing about it is it's very close ties to two other animated yep. features, uh, one being 101 Dalmatians, because a lot of people refer to this as 101 Dalmatians with cats, and then the <laughs> other one is it's very close to the Jungle Book, just in its uh, overall feel and mood and, and sense of character study and mm -hmm. all those sorts of things. So, um, Ruthie, let's go back to the very start and where this whole idea of doing a, a movie called The Aristocats started. And it actually goes back to the early 1960s, a good nine years before the movie ever got uh, seen by the public. But it was yeah. originally planned as something completely different. Why don't you tell everybody what that was? Yeah, so originally it was planned as a live-action two-part special for the Wonderful World of Color, uh, you know, anthology series that Walt hosted. Right, which was not uncommon. They they did a lot of those. Oh, yeah, they did tons like, of animal stories. And, yeah. like, Annette was in a few of them, like this Escapade in Florence and the Horse Masters. And then what they would do is they would um, package them together together 
as a it would be a two-parter and it would be 45 minutes each with the commercials right because it's a one-hour tv show so about 45 to 48 minutes and then when they put it together it would be a nice hour and a half and it could be released theatrically overseas which is generally what they would do they would show it on tv in the states and then they would release these in in europe as a full length because they didn't have american tv <laughs> right right so this is kind of the brainchild of three authors the first one is named harry title the second one is tom mcgowan and then the third one is tom rowe and i'll just give you a little bit of background on these three men before we actually get into the story of how the aristocats came to be so harry title he joined Disney in 1936 in the animation department where he was an assistant director. And then he just continued to move up through the ranks. He was a production manager, a shorts manager, a cartoon production manager, and a production coordinator. And he just kept, you know, getting more responsibility as he stayed with the company. So all of that happened basically from the 1930s to the 1960s. And then in the 1970s, he became a producer of what we were just talking about, these live action specials for television, these animal um, features. So Shandar, the Black Leopard of Ceylon, Salty, the Hijacked Harbor Seal, the Little Shepherd Dog of Catalina, Barry of the Great St. Bernard, and the Proud Bird of Shanghai. So all of these, you know, specials for the sh- the television show were all produced by Harry Title. And then beyond television and films, he also served as Disney representative in Europe for projects and films there. And then in 1998, he wrote an autobiography entitled One of Walt's Boys. I have never heard of this book, so now I'm interested in finding out more about him, but he actually has a deep deep-rooted Disney connection here. Now, the other two do not. (laughs) So, Tom McGowan, he was a writer, director, and producer. And he is best known for directing some of these lesser-known films. Manhunt in the Jungle from 1958, Case of the 44s, 1965, and Wilbur and the Baby Factory from 1970. None of those are Disney. The, the only reason why I'm bringing these up is because he has a very small career in film and, and television and things like that. So he was also known for writing scripts and he wrote the script for the 1969 film Cherry, Harry and Rock Hell. Never heard of it. <laughs> but he did do a couple of things for Disney. He directed two episodes of the Disney anthology series. Again, we're talking about some of the uh, animal short feature documentary episodes. So one was from 1959 titled Killers of the High Country and the other one was The Hound Who Thought He Was a Raccoon from 1963. Now that one's pretty well known. In fact, I think that one might be on Disney+. Plus. Mm. Yeah, it might be. You're right. And then his last directing credit was in 1985 for The film Night Train to Terror, he directed a segment titled The Case of Claire Hansen, which from the title, I'm assuming it's a horror film. And then the last person, Tom Rowe, has zero Disney connection other than the Aristocats. (laughs) Yeah. 
So he was best known for writing the screenplay for the 1981 film Tarzan the Ape Man. And he also wrote the screenplay for the films The Green Slime from 1968 and The Light at the Edge of the World, 1971. And then his last writing credits were he wrote a couple of episodes of Fantasy Island you know, in the late 70s and early 80s. So that's basically all I could find out about him. So how did all of these three men come together to create their Aristocats? Let's go back to the end of 1961. <laughs> so Tom McGowan lived in London. And um, around this time, both Harry Title and Walt Disney were also in London, I'm assuming doing you know some work on films and television series at the time. And Walt actually uh, suggested that Title go visit Tom McGowan and talk about, you know, coming up with some of these animal stories for the, the television show. So they did. They met. And by the new year, so we're not talking about very long because this was December of 1961. And by right. the, the beginning of the new later, year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Tom McGowan had found several stories and one was a children's book about a mother cat and her kittens set in New York City. Did you know the name of the children's book? No. I couldn't find that either. But this is the one that Tom Rowe wrote. Oh, okay. So Tom Rowe wrote that book, and yeah. they, they adapted it, but I couldn't find the name of that book. Yeah, it's basically like lost in history. I could not. I looked up yeah. so many different times looking for this, and all I could really find in in terms of books was like a little golden book, but that's not, obviously it's based on the film. That's not the actual book that the, right, right. that we're talking about here. And it wasn't called the Aristocats. It, it right. was something else. Yeah. Yeah. So McGowan liked that story and then he brought it to Harry title and then title felt like the London location for that they used for a 101 Dalmatians was a really good setting. So he kind of played off of that European vibe and decided to set this story in Paris. Right. So again, this whole time right now, as they're meeting and talking, they're still thinking about this as a live action show. Right. right. So originally this story that they found and then adapted was that it would be revolve around two servants, a butler and a maid, were in line to inherit the fortune of an eccentric mistress after the pet cats died. So that's similar to what we end up with. And it focuses, like, so the story is not so much focused as much on the cats, but more on the servants. And it focuses on their different attempts to eliminate the cats. And then also it does have an extended section where the mother cat is trying to hide the kittens to keep them out of danger in variety of different homes and locales around Paris. So that's how they would fit the whole cityscape into the story there. Around that time, they were continuing to meet and formulating this story. And they finally, after Harry Title and McGowan revising Tom Rowe's story multiple times and making different revisions and things, they sent a completed script to Burbank to the Disney studio. And it was rejected by the Disney studio. Right. Not by Walt, though. Walt never even right. never even got to Walt. Right. So they found that out only because McGowan was very persistent. And so he reached directly to Walt and gave him the script that they had written. Right. Walt was in London again. Yeah. 
and he gave it, he handed it to Walt personally when Walt was again visiting London, another right. time in London. So, I mean, they were even put together because of Walt. So that's, that makes sense that they would go back to him. He was actually filming the movie we just referenced earlier, Escapade in Florence, which, mm -hmm. which was being filmed over in Europe. So that's why Walt was in London. And this was, uh, I think, by late 1961, early 62, that this was still happening. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like all of this stuff, well, at least in the beginning, happened pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So after McGowan went to Walt's hotel and dropped the script off, Walt literally picked up the phone and called him before McGowan could even get home from dropping off the envelope. And he told him that he liked the script and he wanted to move forward with it. So they kept working on the treatment, and at the end of this, you know, Walt was like, okay, we're going to buy the story, and we're going to do it as a live action with McGowan directing and title would produce. And so that script was finally finished February 1st, 1963, and then title was preparing to begin shooting in Paris with this live action cat story. But then sometime around late summer, early fall of 1963... Wooly Reitherman somehow got a hold of this script and then he immediately saw the, the possibility of this being the follow-up project for an animated feature that would follow the Jungle Book. Um, and this was right around the same time, you know, we're talking about 1963, so Walt was all over the place. Like, they were producing Mary Poppins, he was looking for property to build Walt Disney World. You know, he was just, you know, the just non-stop working. Yeah, yep, the World's Fair, too. Yep, I mean, yeah. he was like, yeah. So, in August of 1963, Walt asked for a copy of the Aristocats script, the same script that he had already basically approved. And then two days later, Card Walker announced that it would be their next animated feature. And then the project was shelved. <laughs> right, because they were already working on the Jungle Book, so... Right they were planning on doing it after the Jungle Book, but they did get started on some of the early developmental portions of it, such as uh, some of the storyboarding was being done, and they were also coming up with some songs for the production, and the Sherman Brothers were enlisted to write several songs for it. And this was for the original version that never got put on the screen but, uh, some some an element of it did but there was so much that was changed from what it was at this point it's basically a completely different movie than what it was originally supposed to be in yeah. fact one of the things that uh, was taken out right away because Walt felt that they needed to be a little bit more tight with the story is there was always going to be a fourth kitten named Waterloo. Mm -hmm. The kittens already had their names set from early on. Marie, Toulouse, and Berlioz. But then there was going to be a... There's so one female, and then those were two males, and then there was going to be a third male kitten named Waterloo. But he eventually got cut out. Waterloo? That sounds like maybe he should be like the military person or something like that. Right. Like a Napoleon or something. Yeah, that was where Napoleon lost yeah. his battle yeah 
They did have some story sessions between 1964 and 66 that Walt Disney personally sat in on, and but not very many because he was a busy yeah. guy. He was all but, over the place. <laughs> right. So one thing that Walt Disney really felt was important in the heart of the story was how the mother was looking for permanent homes for her kittens where they would best fit in with their various talents. So Marie was a singer, Berlioz was a pianist, and Toulouse was a painter. So they wanted them to fit into the proper homes for their various, you know, artistic abilities. And he felt that was the the heart, the key to the whole story. And none of that ever happened in the final version. The only evidence of it is a scene where they do show off their talents towards the beginning. We'll get to that later. But as far as looking for homes for them, that completely got cut out, which is just so strange because Walt f felt it was that was the whole point of the whole film was that element of it. So, um, right. but uh, uh, originally, also um, Winston Hibbler was going to be um, put in charge of the project, but he sort of moved away from animation entirely uh by the time they sort of went with full forward with it and it sort of fell into the hands of Wooly Reitherman who ended up becoming the key person behind the whole story he was mm -hmm. the director and everything and he made all the final decisions he was basically Walt for this yeah. one because all yeah. final choices were his choices yeah I mean, Winston Hibbler is still listed as a producer, but right. probably because just for his work that he did in the beginning. He did some early work on it, yeah. right. And also, many of the nine old men who are the famous people who um, Walt Disney considered his very best animators uh, worked on this film. They were still around and working on animation at this point, and they would for a good another eight or nine years mm -hmm. um, so they were still all working on it so these are the same animators who worked on all the classics like you know uh, Cinderella Sleeping Beauty 101 Dalmatians Peter Pan they were all working on this so mm -hmm. except yep. for some of them who had gone on to other areas such as Mark Davis who is now working in um, Imagineering and a few others, but the ones that were still animators were all, all worked on this film. Yeah, yep. So, Wooly Reitherman really felt that this needed to be more like 101 Dalmatians, an adventure story, a journey, a, a, a great adventure through the, the countryside. So he completely got rid of the whole Parisian element and made it much more, much more of the story takes place in the French countryside. And it's sort of hard to even tell at certain points that this even takes place in France because mm -hmm. um, your daughter, when you watched it with her the other day, she said to you, nobody in this movie even has a French accent. Yeah. <laughs> that was one of the things that was kind of bothering her while we were watching it. She just kept wondering, like, why don't they have a French accent? 
even you know all of the main characters even duchess who has an accent it's not french it's hungarian we'll get to yeah. that too when we get to the final st- we're going to go through the whole story in a few yeah. minutes but all of that goes back to what we were talking about with the jungle book so the jungle book that film they created characters based off of the voice cast and then yes. they just took that same type of process for this film as well they they used they picked the people that they wanted to provide the voices for the different main characters and then they based a character off of that person and off of that voice so that was what that's actually one of the things that people or that critics kind of criticize this film for because it's not the other way around where they created a character and then somebody came in and just provided the voice as an actor kind of a thing right so the the actual uh, person doing the part influenced the design and mannerisms and behaviors of the characters, which was a trend that lasted from the Jungle Book up until the Rescuers before they finally started going in a different direction. And they sort of leaned back into it with Robin Williams as the genie in... um, in Aladdin, but they never really went back to it full hog like they were doing back in the early 70s, especially with this film. But uh, it was so successful with the Jungle Book that they sort of wanted to replicate it again. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, you know, varying degrees of success. I mean, I like it, but a lot of people don't. Um, yeah. And we know you like it. Yes. But, uh, so. <laughs> There was really a lot of people that were starting to feel like the animation department was under threat because of Walt After Disney, Walt no, yeah. right? Because of Walt Disney and no longer there to to emphasize it, and it was becoming more and more expensive, and uh, it was uh, something that the executives were already during Walt's lifetime trying to get rid of but Walt wouldn't allow it so the only thing that really saved uh, the animation from being cut right away and why they were able to go forward with the Aristocats was because the Jungle Book was a major box office success and based on that the animation department was allowed to go forward so Wooly Reitherman was really worried during the whole mm-hmm. production of this that it had to make a profit. Otherwise, animation and Disney would no longer exist. And yeah. so he did a lot of shortcuts and cut out the fat and streamlined the whole production because of that. He wanted to keep the costs down. He wanted to keep the base, the story simple. He wanted to do something that would be popular among audiences, not do anything too risky. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, he he and he succeeded in that because the film yeah. was a, a a box office success, and uh, it uh, did allow animation to move forward to the next project, which was Robin Hood. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it was basically at this time, it was almost like from one film to the next, you just never knew what was going to happen with the animation department. And the other thing is they, they had big plans for this film, 
that just little by little got whittled out because they wanted to streamline it, cut out the fat. Like I said, one example, a good a good example of that is originally uh, Thomas O'Malley, the character, was going to be a striped tabby cat, and they ended up taking his stripes away because it would have taken more money and more time to animate all the stripes. So mm -hmm. they made him a solid color and turned him into a calico instead. So little things like that saved the studio a lot of money. But it would have been cool to have him be a striped cat, but and if yeah. you know that if you know that it, it's missing, you kind of wonder, hmm, it might have been nicer to have him be striped, but unless mm -hmm. you know that, you probably wouldn't even notice it. I mean, right. I never did. Yeah. I definitely didn't notice that when I was a kid watching this film. But no. I did notice it when I rewatched it, you know, a couple of days ago. So. And then the other thing is they cut out uh, the maid character and they sort mm -hmm. of combined that character into one character. So she ended up being completely cut and they just kept the butler instead. And so some of the songs that were written for her and for that element of the story were cut out. And a lot of the Sherman Brothers' earlier songs were also cut out because mm -hmm. of all the changes that were made over time to the story and to keep the story moving forward quickly, fast-paced. And uh, they went more with... They wanted to go more with sight gags and comedy and less with storytelling in a lot of cases. Yeah. And they added whole sequences that were not a part of the original story. We'll get to that too. Mm -hmm. But who did they originally plan to voice the maid, Elvira? And I think they even did some live action reference with her and voice recordings, which have been lost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was going to be Elsa Lanchester. You know, right. the uh, Katie Nana from Mary Poppins, among other right. Disney credits. Yeah. yeah. So she was really involved with this in the beginning as well. Right. And it's a shame because she would have been wonderful in this. I oh, yeah. She would have. Yeah. Imagine her as a part of this project. So another thing they did to cut costs was originally the kittens and Duchess were going to be really fluffy Parisian cats, which makes sense because this takes place in Paris. But to save time and money, they changed them to short hairs, American short hairs. Mm -hmm. Another thing that probably confused your daughter. Yeah. So <laughs> maybe subconsciously, but. Yes. Well, that's why the American accent goes with the American cat. <laughs> There's some earlier films that sort of people like to think of that, that might have influenced this film but I'm gonna just say my opinion is they probably had very little influence because other than location and type of animal at least in one of the two things we're gonna cite as outside influences it has absolutely no correlation with with the Disney story or film whatsoever so the name Aristocat which is if you don't know is short is is a sort of a spoof of the word aristocrat which means somebody of of uh, 
of royalty or great wealth that is uh, not nouveau riche, but you know, old wealth, like somebody who's who's generationally wealthy is considered an aristocrat, and it's especially something that you think of in terms of European ancestry. But uh, Mary Medley's from Warner Brothers thought of the name first. I don't know if Disney was even aware of, of their short at the time. They may or may not have been, but they actually did have a short called The Aristocat, spelled with a hyphen, Aristo hyphen cat which was uh, released in 1943 and it is about a cat and a butler <laughs> and a butler but i don't yeah. think it takes place in i think it takes place in in america i don't think it has anything to do with paris or anything so other than that it, it it's just a short it's just like a mm -hmm. seven minute short now the other one that people like to think disney sort of plagiarize this from which is completely if you've seen this movie you'll know it has no relation to the disney version at all it's a 1962 movie by upa we've talked about upa before they're sort of an experimental animation studio that started in the late 40s and sort of influenced disney in, in certain ways during that era uh, they only did two full-length animated films throughout their very short-lived tenure as an animation house and this was the second and it was called gay per e spelled p-u-r-r -R hyphen e-e -E. and it came out in 1962 had an all-star vocal cast including if you would believe judy garland in the starring role uh, unfortunately, the film was a huge, flat-out box office bomb, if ever there was one. And it sort of put UPA out of business. It sort of ended the whole studio, to put it yeah. bluntly. Um, but this was, it took place in France, and it was about a country cat who had, you know, wanted to go to the city and become famous. That was the Judy Garland character, whose name was the Musette. And <laughs> then it had a sort of a villain cat who was played by um, Paul Fries, another Disney tie-in. It had red buttons as sort of her little partner in crime, her little friend that followed her everywhere. Um, and then it had like the the main cat who was sort of you could say sort of resembles thomas o'malley from the aristocats but the plot is completely different there's the plot has absolutely no resemblance and the and the stylizing of the characters is very com it's completely differently drawn it's a different style of backgrounds the whole movie is different it has all mm -hmm. different songs. It's it's, and it's sort of, it's not the most exciting. It's sort of hard to sit through. I, I'm not surprised it didn't do well. Mm -hmm. You'd think with all that talent, that vocal talent, they would have done really well. But uh, the songs are sort of boring. 
Mm. Which is sort of just they they're very mostly slow love songs. There's there's not a lot of there's a couple sort of more upbeat songs, but they're not nearly as upbeat as you would want them to be. Mm. Oh, and Hermione Gingold, who's sort of famous because she for French related uh, movies because she was in um, uh, Gigi. Remember oh, her and yeah. Gigi? Mm-hmm. She also did a voice in this. She played like a big fat sort of snobby cat madame ruben chat and uh <laughs> yeah so anyways a lot of people like to look to gay Paris and say oh well that's just disney stealing from that mm-hmm. movie but no sorry you're wrong it had nothing to- <laughs> disney didn't even think of this as being an animated feature at first at first they were planning on doing it as a live action and they started right. developing it before this even came out. And they even knew that this existed. So, sorry, you're wrong. <laughs> it's almost like the opposite story because it starts out in the country and then goes to the city and really plays up the whole Paris city vibe and everything yeah, like that. right, exactly. Yeah. So let's quickly go through the people involved in the uh, making of this film. And then we'll get to the plot. And as we go through the plot, we'll talk about the cast and the songs and any other interesting little things we can think of as we go through the plot. But Wolfgang Reitherman, as we mentioned before, was the director and producer. Winston Hibbler was an earlier producer that he got credited because he did early preliminary work. Ken Anderson was sort of the head of the story, but he was really under the dictates of Wolfgang Reitherman, who yeah. sort of told him, okay, this is the story, write it down. <laughs> and he also basically kind of developed all of the characters initially as well. Right, the character design. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. and and both Wolfgang and Ken are two of the nine old men, of course. Milk Call, another of the nine old men who is famous for his work on uh, human beings. He did Madame, Edgar, and Georges, who are the three humans in this film. And I, you know, one thing I have to say about this film is I think this has some of the absolute best human animation Mm -hmm. ever put on the screen. I think it's even better than... Um, 101 Dalmatians. Um, it's just amazing human animation in this movie. Yeah. I think he sort of reached his apex with this. And it's not something that's generally recognized, but I, I w- I'm really impressed by how flawless the human characters are in this film. I mean, the animal characters are well drawn too. One thing about this movie is it is well animated and there's no doubt about it. I mean, it is far above what any other animation studio was doing at this time. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And, uh, so milk called did all the human characters, but he also worked on, I mean, every, the thing is, we like to sort of say, okay, this animator worked on this character and this animator worked on this character, but they all sort of just worked on whatever, depending on what scene it was. But yeah. uh, uh, Ollie Johnson, Frank Thomas, of course, another two of the nine old men worked on this, John Lounsbury and Eric Larson. They worked on all the characters sort of, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what, is this an Ollie Johnson scene? It's hard to pinpoint yeah. it. 
So we're yeah, not going to. Yeah, they haven't really, like, said, okay, this person was uh, assigned this scene, this person was assigned right. this scene. There's less information out there about this film as far as the production than there are about almost every other animated film that preceded it and followed it. This is sort yeah. of like the the forgotten Disney film because it just sort of it's in the middle. You know, it's between, it's it's before this happened, but after that happened. So it sort of falls between the cracks. So there's not a lot of literature out there about it. There is, but not as much as there is for other Disney films. So it's hard to right. get into the weeds on some of these things. So let's get into the story and what we're going to do is we're going to go through the plot but we're going to sort of sidetrack a little bit and talk about some of the scenes that were cut as well so the first thing i want to sort of mention before we get into the actual uh, movie is the opening scene that never happened originally before even the opening credits uh, you were going to pan into the city of Paris and you were going to enter the Louvre Museum with a voiceover narrator describing everything. And there was going to be a special exhibit in the Louvre just for cats. And you would go into this room and sitting in the middle of the room on a bench was... Uh, the mother and her three kittens, and surrounded by a bunch of paintings of humans with their cats in their laps or holding their cats. And they would show all of these famous people throughout history in these paintings that had their feline companions with them. And that is where the credits were gonna happen. They were gonna show all these paintings of famous people in the Louvre Museum with their cats and the credits would be during the sequence. Mm -hmm. But that didn't end up happening. <laughs> right. What ended up happening is uh, they coaxed Maurice Chevalier out of retirement to record a song written for him by the Sherman Brothers called the Aristocats, which may or may not have been planned for that same opening sequence with the paintings. I think they cut it out because they wanted to just keep it cheap. So instead, mm -hmm. they just have a traditional opening credit scene, you know, Walt Disney Productions Presents. And under the credits, they have bits and pieces of line animation taken mm -hmm. from the uh, later scenes that you would see in the film. So they didn't even do original animation for the opening sequence. They just showed different things to come later in the movie as Marie Chevalier sang over it and they had the opening credits. I still enjoy the opening credits. I think it's cute and it's enjoyable. And of course you got to love Marie Chevalier and it's a terrific song. But I think it would have been so much more magical had they done the the original idea of having the paintings and everything. I think mm -hmm. that, that sounds more interesting to me. I don't know yeah. how, you, how you feel, but... I mean, I don't really know how it would uh, fit into the overall story, but yeah, I mean, I think it would have to lead to a, diff a little bit of a different story, but 
The one thing about this is Maurice Chevalier is the most French thing about this film. <laughs> he is. And he was actually had to be coaxed out of retirement. And yeah. he explained later that, uh, well, here's a quote. He said, I would not have done it for anyone else and for any kind of money except the honor of showing my love and admiration for the one and only Walt. And Maurice Chevalier died soon after this movie came out. He didn't live much longer. So this was his last, the last thing he ever did professionally. Which pet's address is the finest in Paris? Which pets possess the longest pedigree? Which pets get to sleep on velvet mats? Naturellement, the aristocats. Which pets are blessed with the fairest forms and faces? Which pets know best all the gentle social graces? Which pets live on cream and loving pats? Naturellement, the aristocats. They show aristocratic bearing when they're seen upon an area. An aristocratic flair in what they do and what they say. Aristocats are never found in alleyways or hanging around the garbage cans where common kitties play. Oh no! Which pets are known to never show their claws? Which pets are prone to hardly any flaws? To which pets do the others tip their hats? Naturellement, the Aristocats! Bearing when they're seen upon an airing, an aristocratic flair in what they do and what they say. Aristocats are never found in alleyways or hanging around the garbage cans where common kitties play. Oh no! Which pets are known to never show their claws? Which pets are prone to hardly any flaws? To which pets do the others tip their hats? Mais naturellement, oh voyons, mais, mais naturellement, oh naturellement, the aristocats. Now, what happens is at the end of the song, we see a line drawing of a scene in Paris with a bridge and I think the Eiffel Tower, the background, and it transitions into full color and then it becomes uh, animated and you see a carriage being pulled by a horse uh, and it is being ridden by a aristocratic woman and her three cats and it's being driven by her butler. And so the first character that we meet is uh, Madame Adelaide Bonfamille. Tell us about who played her, Ruthie, and, and what that uh, actress's uh, history is. Well, the person who provided Madame's voice is Hermione Badgley, and we have definitely talked about her before. She was born in November 1906, and she's an English character actress of theater, film, and television. 
and she's typically known for like the brash, vulgar, kind of brassy characters that, you know, these English women. And she basically has taken this persona and has portrayed multiple characters with like this very similar persona, um, including one of mine and Chris's favorite Disney films. She played Ellen, the maidservant in Mary Poppins. So right. that's where you will probably recognize her the most. And she basically played the exact same role in The Happiest Millionaire. Yep. Not but the same was, name, but yes. But she, and she was Irish in that movie instead of English, yeah. but same character. <laughs> <laughs> she was also in some other films like The Bells of St. Trinian, The Unsinkable Molly Brown, uh, The Pickwick Papers, one version of The Christmas Carol. And she's been making films since like the 1920s. And she's also had a very successful stage career. And one of the things that she's had was a long professional relationship with Noel Coward. And she appeared in many of his plays throughout the 1940s and 1950s. And we talked about Hermione Gingold from uh, Gay Paris. And she actually teamed up with her in uh, Coward's comedy, Fallen Angels. Right. And then my personal favorite was her sitcom appearance in Maud. Mm. She played Mrs. Nagatuck. And uh, she replaced uh, Florida Evans, the, the mother from Good Times, who was Maud's original maid. She left to do a spinoff, mm-hmm. which was Esther Roll was the actress. And she took her place as the maid and for the rest of the series. And she's so funny on that show. <laughs> well, she actually won a Golden Globe Award for Best Supporting Actress for playing that that right. character. So yeah. a lot of people liked her in that. <laughs> yeah. She was also nominated for Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for her performance in the movie Room at the Top from 1959. And she was also nominated for a Tony Award for best performance by a lead actress in a play for The Milk Train Doesn't Stop Here Anymore in 1963. <laughs> so what she's probably known for besides Mary Poppins to American audiences are for roles in um, a lot of different TV shows like Bewitched, Batman, Little House on the Prairie, and Camp Runamuck. The other thing that she was doing more towards the end of her career was some voiceover. She played a a character called Auntie Shrew in the animated film from 1982, The Secret of Nim. And then besides playing Ellen and Mary Poppins, she played Miss Irene Chesney in The Adventures of Bullwhip Griffin from 1967. And Mrs. Worth is the name of her character that she played in The Happiest Millionaire, also from 1967. Right. And she played the same character in Bullwhip Griffin. Yeah. I just hear her screaming, ah, they're at it again. Ah! <laughs> so the next uh, character we see is the butler who ends up becoming the villain of the story. But at first he's not presented as a villain. He is uh, Madame Bonflamille's fateful servant. And uh, he is Edgar Balthazar, played by Roddy Maud Roxby. He didn't have as long of a career and as storied of a career as uh, as uh, Hermione Badley did, but he did have some interesting things that I found out about him. 
he was born in 1930 in London. His birth name was Roderick A. Maud Roxby, and Roddy was his nickname. And he was one of the first... There is a um, type of acting known as performance art. And he was one of the first United Kingdom actors to be recognized as a performance artist before it was really even recognized as an art form. And what he would do is he would work with different masks and do improvisations with masks. And he did this for over 40 years and it's sort of what he was famous for. And he developed a sort of different improvisational game play for the Royal Court Theatre. So he was really more of a performance artist than an actor. So he doesn't have a lot of acting credits because it was more about stage performance and not being at a play and reading lines. But he did do some work uh, with uh, the people who were involved with the Modding Python players in its earlier years, um, sort of before they became known as Modding Python. And the first thing he worked on with them was a thing with Michael Palin and Terry Jones called The Complete and Utter History of Britain. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he did some work in stand-up as well. And he moved to New York in the 60s, and he actually won a theater award in 1968 for Best Stand-Up Comedian. And that was what sort of got him recognized to do the part for the Aristocats. And this was his only vocal role. He did 11 other films spanning from 1961 to 2002, but this was the only voice role that he ever did. That's unusual because his voice is really good. Like, I love his voice. Like, it's very distinctive and it, you know, it's, that's unusual that they didn't use him in other things. No, this is it. So now the next person we're going to meet played the, basically the lead. I consider her the lead of this film, the lead character. And who is that, Ruthie? So the lead character is Duchess. She's the mother cat and she has three kittens. And Duchess is voiced by Ava Gabor. And uh, she was a Hungarian-born actress, businesswoman, singer, and socialite. She was born in Budapest, Hungary in February 1919. And she is the youngest of the Gabor sisters. So she has two older sisters. That's Zsa Gabor and Magda Gabor. And they always get confused because they look almost identical to each other. Yeah. <laughs> so, and they, both of them were also actresses and socialites. Yeah. And the one thing about Ava Gabor is that she was the first sister to immigrate to the United States. Right. Now, she's also the nice one. Don't get her confused with Jaja, who's Zsa-Zsa. the nasty, mean <laughs> one. Eva was a very nice woman. Yeah. So don't confuse her with Jaja, who slapped policemen around. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So her first movie role was in. 1941 it was a film titled forced landing then from there she continued to work in films during the 1950s she had bit parts in several films 
including The Last Time I Saw Paris, which was starred Elizabeth Taylor, and then also Artists and Models, which featured Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. In 1953, she was given her own television show, The Ava Gabor Show, which ran for one season from 1953 to 1954. And through the rest of the 50s and early 1960s, she appeared on television and movies in such films as uh, the remake of My Man Godfrey. She appeared in Gigi. And then it started with a kiss. But... This, where she really got well-known for is in 1965, she landed the role of Lisa Douglas in the television show Green Acres. And that ran until 1971. So she was on TV for quite a New long time. New York is where I'd rather stay. <laughs> I get allergic smelling hay. <laughs> Just give me that countryside. No, York is where I'd rather stay. I get allergic smelling hay. I just adore a penthouse view. Darling, I love you, but give me Park Avenue. The chores. The stores. Fresh air. Times Square. You are my wife. <laughs> Darling, I love you, but give me Park Avenue. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where people started hearing that voice, is that I show. I absolutely loved Green Acres. It's definitely one of my all-time favorite sitcoms, classic sitcoms. I love it. It just feels like it's so Disney to me. Because a lot of the people in it did voices yeah. for Disney, she yep. she or did live action films, like the person who played her husband was in the movie uh, Escape to Witch Mountain. Mm, that's and, right. Uh, there's a the guy who played Mr. Haney in this. We'll talk about him later. Was also did a voice for this movie. Mm. So <laughs> that is funny. Yeah. In 1972, she launched a fashion collection. So she was actually a little, you know, she worked with a, a well-known fashion designer. And in her later years, she did a lot of voiceover work. So she started as Duchess in this film. She also provided the voice for Miss Bianca in The Rescuers and The Rescuers Down Under. And then a non-Disney film where she provided the voice was Queen of Time in the Sanrio film Nutcracker Fantasy. Which I've never heard of, but it's Sanrio, so I'm assuming it's Hello Kitty. <laughs> so I threw in this next bit of information just for Chris. She was <laughs> she was a panelist on the Gene Rayburn hosted match game, which, if anybody knows, this is Chris's favorite game show. Yeah, I'm obsessed with the match game. <laughs> I watch it like it's my guilty pleasure. <laughs> Another reason why I love the match game, because I love Eva Gabor. 
Yeah. She's a favorite. <laughs> yeah. I always loved her. Not a fan of her sister, but there. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're not talking about her sister anymore. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1983, she reunited with Eddie Albert from Green Acres. Right. On Broadway. And in a play called You Can't Take It With You, she played Grand Duchess Olga Katrina. That sounds and appropriate then, for her. Yeah. <laughs> So then uh, she she had a little bit of a, a comeback here or there with uh, some TV shows with a CBS sitcom pilot, Close Encounters. But I if um, it was a sitcom of the movie. The movie, yeah, I don't know. About space The pilot creatures. aired, but then it was never it was never bought for a series, so it, they didn't hmm. turn it into an actual show. Yeah, and then. She actually toured post-communist Hungary after a 40-year absence on one of the episodes of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, which is where you're going to see all the Gabor sisters on that show. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so a couple more things about her. She was actually married five times, but never had any children. Those Gabor sisters married Oh, yes. She is not even the worst. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <She's not> the- <laughs> And then um, she passed away from respiratory failure and pneumonia on July 4th, 1995. And she actually died before her older sisters and her mother. And she's the youngest. Yeah, right. So no. it's kind of unusual there. Yeah. So that's Ava Gabor. Now we also meet one of the first, we meet the other two later, but we meet the first of the kittens in this opening scene as well because he's riding on top of uh, the horse's head and we're doing this in order of who talks first so he actually has a line before the other two cats do so we'll mention him here just to stay in the same order and that would be Berlioz, who was voiced by Dean Clark. What did you? We didn't find out much about him. No, there was literally nothing. So <laughs> <laughs> I know two things about him. Dean Clark was actually born Dane Bevan, and I'm guessing around 1965 because he was five years old when he voiced this character, and this is his only movie appearance. I think it might have been a lot earlier than that, Ruthie, because they tended to do the. Yeah, that record the voices first and then do the animation. Mm. So he might have even recorded this three years before. So yeah, that could be. He could have been born as early as like 1962, I'd say. But yeah, so early 60s. Yeah, right. Yeah, but I couldn't even find a year. So that's 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 all I could find. (laughs) (laughs) But the next person. Had a very small role, but she's an amazing person who has a huge career, and we just wanted to get into it with her, because, wow, we love Nancy Culp. And if you don't know, I'm going to give it away, Ruthie. I have to tell everybody before we even get into this, so people know exactly who we're talking about. She was Jane Hathaway on the Beverly Hillbillies, the long-suffering secretary of the banker. I can't even remember the banker's name. Do you remember the banker's name on the Beverly Hillbillies? But she was his secretary for like, that show ran like 10, more than 10 years. So that's what she's most famous for. But let's get into her career, Ruthie. What did you find out about her? 
So she was born August 28, 1921 in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. She actually, um, in 1943, she graduated from Florida State College for Women with a bachelor's degree in journalism. And then she continued her studies for a master's degree in English and French at the University of Miami. So she's a, a, a studious person here. And one thing I need to mention before you go on is she embodied the mid-Atlantic accent like nobody mm, yes. before or mm -hmm. after. She sounded practically British, but she was born in the United States, raised mm -hmm. in the United States, but she had that proper mid-Atlantic accent, which if you don't know, we've talked about this in other episodes, but for those who are joining us for the first time, mid-Atlantic means not quite American, not quite English accent, sort of halfway in between. And in the earlier part of the 20th century, a lot of people, and it's not a natural accent, you have to learn this accent. And people who are sort of of high class would take on this accent to sound more sophisticated and whatnot. And you'd hear it in early movies, a lot of early television, and it sort of started to fade out in the 60s. And really, the only person who has a mid-Atlantic accent now is Madonna. Other yeah. than that... <laughs> hmm. So, I mean, she had that definite mid-Atlantic accent. I just thought I'd throw that out there because that's oh, yeah, she part of does. her whole persona was that. Right, so. you're right. So, in the early 40s, she was working as a feature writer for the Miami Beach Tropics newspaper where she would write profiles of celebrities such as Clark Gable and the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. <laughs> And then uh, during World War II, she left the University of Miami and joined the women's branch of the United States Naval Reserve. So she obtained the rank of lieutenant, junior grade, and received several decorations while in the service, including the American Campaign Medal. And she was honorably discharged from the reserve in 1946. I thought that was really interesting that she did that. Here's really where her Hollywood career starts. So in 1951, she moved to Hollywood and worked at MGM in their publicity department. And this is where she encountered the famous director, George Cukor, because he worked at the studios. And back then, like directors had offices at the studios and things like that. So he would probably be there all the time when he wasn't filming a movie. And he actually convinced her that she should be an actress. And so that same year, she made her film debut as a character actress in the film The Model and the Marriage Broker. And this kind of actually led to what she would kind of become known for before she actually developed individual characters. But she was a character actress, so she would be in a lot of these films kind of in the background and have a couple of lines here or there, you know, playing different things. So in some of the other films that she did this for, the film Shane... Sabrina and A Star is Born. These are all very well-known films. Mm -hmm. And then in 1955, she joined the cast of The Bob Cummings Show. You know, Bob Cummings is one of the hosts of uh, Dateline Disneyland. Yeah. 
And this is kind of where she started to develop a little bit more of her own individual character. She had a character called Pamela Livingstone, and she was a bird watcher, like a neighborhood bird watcher who wore a wore a pith helmet. So, yes. <laughs> sort of the of the hoity-toity variety. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, a couple of other Disney films that you would might recognize her in is, of course, one we just recently talked about, The Parent Trap. She played Miss Grunecker. She worked at Camp Inch. Mm-hmm. And um, she was the one who was actually going around taking them to the to their cabin and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then she was actually in an uncredited role in Chris's favorite Disney <laughs> film, Moon Pilot. Yes. <laughs> she plays the space flight nutritionist. Mm-hmm. So, and then the Aristocats is actually her last role in film, but that does not mean that she stopped doing acting or anything like that because really what happened is she took over television i know i literally cannot i would be sitting here for hours talking to you about the shows that she was on from 1954 all the way through 1989 if there was a show on tv she was probably on it i'm not even exaggerating you need to look at her list of things on imdb anything that you can name I, I would almost she guarantee she played spot. a role. Yeah. 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 But like you said, she's best known for playing Jane Hathaway on the Beverly Hillbillies from 1962 to 1971. That's almost 10 years right there. Yeah. Of playing this character. And then she also had recurring roles on the Brian Keith show that was from 1973 to 1974. She played Mrs. Gruber. Yeah. And then she played May Hopkins on Sanford and Son from 1975 to 1976. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's funny on that. Yeah. But in 1990, she was diagnosed with cancer and she passed away February of 1991 and she was only 69. Wow. Yeah. So let's get back to the plot. Now that we described everybody on the on the carriage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what happens is they're, they're riding the carriage. It looks like uh, Madame has just uh, done some shopping. She's with her cat and kittens. And Edgar the butler is driving the carriage. And Fru-Fru the horse is pulling the carriage. Now the animals don't talk at first. But uh, when they arrive at the house, Madame gets out of the carriage and Edgar escorts her to the front door and Berlioz is on top of Fru-Fru's head and Duchess reminds him to thank her for letting him ride on top of her. So that's how they have a little dialogue right there. So when she arrives at uh, her estate, she tells Edgar that she's expecting a guest because they're going to discuss her uh, will. And he, she tells Edgar not to worry, he's going to be remembered in the will. So, uh, next scene sort of reminds me of the entrance of Cruella de Vil from <laughs> 101 Dalmatians because this crazy sports car pulls up onto the street where Madame lives and out comes this... Uh, young at heart elderly gentleman named George Hotcourt. How do you say that in French? Like just Hocour, like Hocour. something like that. Yeah. Forgive us for our French pronunciations on this episode. <laughs> um, 
but this is uh, this uh, role was played by an actor named Charles Lane. Now, before we get into him, let's talk about his scene where he first arrives. He arrives at the uh, house and he has a whole scene with Edgar where uh, Edgar tries to get him to take the elevator to the second floor, <laughs> but he refuses. He says, "I what do I look like, an old man? And he tries to go up the stairs, but he ends up having this whole thing with Edgar where he pulls his suspenders and yeah. <laughs> he ends up having to carry him. And by the time he gets to Madam's uh, room, he um, has... Uh, lost his pants his he, his pants <laughs> fall down and he, his collar is all my, he had a whole thing with trying to get him up the stairs it's kind yeah, of yeah cuz that's what edgar was using his suspenders and stuff to help keep him up from falling because he's yeah. very unstable <laughs> yeah and they show this also well, they show it a little bit later but his his glasses are very thick yeah. so <laughs> he should definitely not be driving a car yeah um <laughs> But he still does. <laughs> now, there's a song that got cut that probably would have fit in right about at this point. And it's called Pourquoi. And it's a song that Madame would have sung about how she feels about her cats. Let's listen to that song. My days are filled with happy hours and happy things to do. And why? Because I have someone like you. Sometimes you make me fret, and yet I'm grateful that you do. And why? Because I have someone like you. Troubles disappear as long as I can have you near. Darlings, can't you see? You're my only family. <laughs> I have the joy of being loved. May we? Ah, yes, it's true. Pourquoi? Because I have someone like you, and you, and you. So that was a song written by the Sherman Brothers, one of many that were cut from the film. But, and we'll mention them as we get to where they would have gone in the plot. 
But moving on, when George arrives, uh, Madame is listening to an, a record album, which is sort of what was happening when they would have we would have heard the song Pourquoi, but instead of playing an original song, she's listening to orchestral music from the opera Carmen, which she was a star of. So we learn that she is a former opera, a retired opera diva, and that's how she knew Georges, is because he was a patron of the opera, and they met each other through that, and they're longtime friends. So yeah. tell us, Ruthie, before we get into more about this scene, about the gentleman who played, who gave voice to Georges, Charles Lane. So Charles Lane was actually born Charles Gerstel Levinson in San Francisco, January 26, 1905. So he's an American character actor and centenarian whose career spans 76 years starting in 1931 and ending over 250 films later in 2006. So I, there's no way I can go, just like Nancy Culp, I can't go through her um, television appearances and I cannot I go through this man's movie. filmography. And it is just literally. For those looking it up in your dictionaries, that means somebody who lived who lived past the age of 100. He lived yeah. till the ripe old age of 102. And he was acting basically all the way up to that point. <laughs> to his death. And the thing is, he basically played a 102-year-old in this movie, which came yeah. out, <laughs> what, f 35 years before he died? So... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so just to name a few of these films you might have heard of, he made appearances in them in um, many Frank Capra films, including Mr. Deeds Goes to Town from 1936, You Can't Take It With You, 1938, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, 1939, Arsenic and Old Lace, 1944, It's a Wonderful Life, 1946, and Riding High, 1950. The other thing is that he was a favored supporting actor of Lucille Ball. So basically, anything that Lucille Ball did, he was in. Yeah. So she used him as a no-nonsense authority figure and comedic foe for her, like, scatterbrained characters that she would have on all of her different shows. So I Love Lucy, the Lucy and Desi comedy hour, the Lucy show, all of these different things is, that she did, he had a part in. Mm -hmm. So his first film role was as a hotel clerk in the film Smart Money from 1931, and that starred Edward G. Robinson and James Cagney. And then another bullet point that I threw in here just for Chris, in 1963, he was in the mega comedy It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, and he played the airport manager. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's one of my favorite movies. Yeah. So he did a couple of other things for Disney besides voicing this character. He played Mr. Pfeiffer in the Wonderful World of Disney episode, My Dog the Thief. He plays the judge in The Ugly Dotson and Dr. Scoggins in The Mobile. And then the last thing that he did for television and also for Disney, at the age of 90, he appeared in the 1995 Disney television remake of the 1970 comedy, The Computer That Wore Tennis Shoes, and this 1995 version starred Kirk Cameron. 
And like we already said before, his last performance was at the age of 101, and he was the narrator in 2006, the night before Christmas. So what happens during the scene here is he and Madam sort of reminisce a little bit, and then they get down to business while Edgar goes down to where the butler's quarters are, and there is a calling device that Madam can use, talk into, and it and it, it's a pipe, and it leads down to where he his living quarters are, but it got left open, so he's able to hear the entire conversation, and while they're talking, he's ironing his pants, which got all ruined during the shuffle going up the stairs. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so he's in his boxer shorts, and. Uh, you remember those old-timey socks that had those stays, at the, like the garters that Yes. Mm-hmm. he has those on? So he looks kind of silly, but he's ironing his pants and eavesdropping on the whole conversation that Madame is having with George. And they're discussing her will. So she says that, you know, I am the sole remaining person in my family... So I'm, of course, going to leave Edgar everything in my fortune. And Edgar is all thrilled and happy to hear this. But, she says, before he can inherit everything, first in line is my cats. And after (laughs) they have lived a healthy life, then Edgar will be the heir to my fortune. And Edgar is completely just can't deal with this because he just he's not he puts on airs that he likes the cats but he really can't Mm -hmm. stand them and the only reason he puts up with them is because it's his job to put up with them and he's putting in his dues so that one day he'll be able to inherit madam's fortune and the whole thought of him coming second in line to the cats causes him to completely go mad and come up with this whole scheme to get rid of the cats. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, now, well, first he goes mad with greed because yes. he hears that he's going to inherit everything. Right. And, like, you see, like, these dollar signs in his eyes, and he's just, you know, he's, like, thinking about the money and how he's going to spend it and things like that. So he basically goes through this whole, like, a roller coaster of emotions within these couple minutes of the scene. Yes. And then, you know, then he hears about the cats and then he's, what? He just can't believe it. And then he's, you know, he's got to figure out something to do because he can't let that happen. Right. So the next the thing we should mention is this is sort of where he would have plotted and schemed with the maid character that got cut out from the film, whose name was Elvira. Because she was going to be named in the will as well. Right. They were both going to inherit it. So she sort of had the uh, romantic notions about Edgar, but Edgar always ignored her and didn't want to have anything to do with her. And so when he found out that Madam is going to leave her half the money, all of a sudden he turns to her and starts singing her love songs and... And it's like his thinking is that, you know, if I marry her, I'll get all the money. So now all of a sudden he's interested in her. So they sing sort of a love song together 
which is sort of he sings a there is two songs in one and then they sing the songs in conjunction with each other sort of like a rondelay so he sings a verse how much you mean to me she sings a verse court me slowly and then they sing a verse together the songs sort of overlap each other so here's another sherman brothers song cut from the film including this character that was cut from the film Know how much, how very, very much you mean to me. Do you know how rich, how very, very rich our lives could be? How value you, I prize you, and that is why I choose you. I alone know what you're worth, my dear. I'd die if I would lose you. If you knew the wealth, the merry, merry wealth of joys that wait. On this very day, this very, very day, you set the date. Let us not delay, I pray. Let us marry right away. Oh, how much, how much, how very, very much you mean to me. Oh, Edgar, this is so sudden. But caught me slowly, send me pretty flowers. I need time for plans and bridal showers Invitations must be engraved Preparations must be made Buy me bonbons, take me dinner dancing Write me poems, do your sweet romancing So the next scene, which was not cut from the film, we get to meet the Duchess and her kittens a little bit more. It's the first scene without any humans. And Duchess and Marie and Berlioz and Toulouse are going to have a little lesson. Toulouse, who's named after the famous French painter Toulouse-Lautrec, uh, fashions himself to be a painter, so he starts having a little painting lesson. And Marie, who is named after Marie Antoinette, starts to have a little singing session. And Berlioz, named after the famous pianist and composer Berlioz, 
uh, is playing a piano piece. And so we sort of get to learn about the, the relationship that, that uh, Duchess has with her kittens and the different personalities of the three kittens. Maria's a little bit of a... She's a nice character. She's an endearing character. She's not snobby or mean or anything. But she is a little bit more... You know, she she feels herself to be a little bit more refined than the other two. She's a little princess. She's a little princess. That's a good word. But she's not like mean or anything. Right. I mean, she she play fights with her brothers, which is what all kids do. Right. And and they the, the same thing with with them. They tease her. She teases them. You know. Right. You know, just things like that. But it's all in in fun. It's not mean or anything. So who plays Marie? So Marie is voiced by an English actress named Liz English. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she was born actually Louise English on April 27, 1962 in England. And she actually began um, her career as a dancer at the age of two and a half. As a child, she won a scholarship to attend the Stella Mann School of Dancing in London and she passed her exams in classical ballet and modern dance and she's basically a classically trained dancer and she also took that you know this training to um appear in different films there's a film on i guess a a children's film called bugsy malone from 1976 where she played the role of the ballerina you've never seen bugsy malone no uh, as a children's film well, it's it's a film starring Scott Baio and uh-huh. um, Jodie Foster, and oh, it's a it's a spoof of gangster movies. Oh, oh and okay. it's set it's set in the Roaring Twenties, but uh, instead of uh, firing guns at each other, they throw pies at each other. <laughs> it's a really funny movie. It's Interesting. so cute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so obviously I haven't seen it because I was really thrown off with the them calling it a children's film. Well, it's an all-child cast, but they're playing adult parts. So it's, oh, they're okay. all dressed up like adults. But they drive little cars that have bicycle wheels. Oh, that's They funny. look like little Model <laughs> Model A cars, like huh. four, little old-fashioned 20s cars, gangster mm-hmm. cars, but they have bike pedals. And it's a really adorable movie. Huh. So I'm surprised you haven't seen it. No, I've never even heard You'll of it. You'll have so to see it. Interesting. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one of the things about her was she was actually chosen by Benny Hill to be one of the original members of the Hills Angels on the Benny Hill Show. Oh, gosh. And she earned a role as a feature performer. So she spent eight years on this show and wow. then dancing also with the Hills Angels. So that was from 1978 to 1986. And she occasionally performs supporting roles and sketches with the show's writer and host. Obviously, that's Benny Hill. <laughs> so she also had, um, she also, again, using her dance skills, she's performed in cabaret all over, you know, England, the Channel Islands, Bangkok. And she had um, minor parts in feature films, including The Wicked Lady from 1983 with Faye Dunaway and The House of the Long Shadow, also from 1983 with Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, John Carradine, and Peter Cushing. That is a cast right there. Mm. (laughs) 
She starred as a leading lady in many comedies and dramas, including Absent Friends, Sudden at Home, Tommy Boy, Don't Dress for Dinner, Bedside Manners, and Shadow of Doubt. So she's also a veteran of several national tours of different um, musicals and plays and things like that. So that's basically her career. She's still alive, and I couldn't find anything that she's done recently, but she's very multi-talented here and she's using all of her different abilities so we also meet Toulouse and that was played by Gary Dubin and what did we find out about him so he was a television and voice actor born in Los Angeles on May 5th 1959 and he actually had a role on Green Acres he played a runaway boy in 1968 and then in 1969 he played Deaf Boy Dal in an episode of The Land of Giants. He had a lot of different parts on television shows and also was a voice actor, so I just kind of thought I would highlight some of the different things that he is best known for as opposed to just going through his whole um, career. So he appeared in the James Bond film Diamonds Are Forever, that was from 1971, in the carnival scene. I don't know if anybody remembers this, but he's lost to Jill St. John at the Water Balloons. And he complained that he's been cheated and she needed more wins to get the stuffed animal, unknowing that the stuffed animal contained the diamonds. So he's part of that scene. But he's really best known for his portrayal of Punky Lazar, who is Danny's friend on the Partridge family. And he portrayed this character from 1971 to 1974. And then I thought this was kind of funny too. He played the ill-fated teenager, Eddie Marchand, who was eaten by the shark in Jaws 2. <laughs> so that was from 1978. Another thing that he was uh, known for, pretty much like the all the way beginning to the 1990s to the early 2000s, was he was a prominent voice actor in dubbing for Japanese animation. And his long career spans from 1966 to 2013. But unfortunately, he passed away from bone cancer in October of 2016. So what happens is uh, during the scene, we get to know the kittens. They have a little fight and Duchess says, okay, you know, stop fighting kids and do your lessons. And Marie and Berlioz go up to the piano and they sing a song called Scales and Arpeggios. And this song was written by the Sherman Brothers. And here we get to meet the uh, singing voice of Duchess, who is prolific vocal actress and overdubbing actress, Robbie Lester. Do me so, do, do so, me do. Every truly cultured music's student knows. You must learn your scales and your arpeggios. Bring the music ringing from your chest and not your nose While you sing your scales and your arpeggios If you're faithful to your daily practicing You will find your progress is encouraging Don't me, so me, don't me, so me, follow so it goes When you do your scales and your arpeggios
Though at first it seems as though it doesn't show Like a tree ability will bloom and grow If you're smart you'll learn by heart what every artist knows You must sing your scales and your So tell us about the singing voice of Duchess. I'm actually really surprised that we have not talked about her up to this point because she has a long career at Disney, especially with music. Yeah. So, which I'll get into a little bit here. But Robbie Lester, she was born Roberta Lester, March 23rd, 1925 in Texas, but she was actually raised in Ontario, Canada. She joined the U.S. Army Air Corps before attending UCLA and she was majoring in music there at UCLA. In Hollywood, she worked with Henry Mancini and Herb Alpert, and she recorded for Liberty, Warner Brothers, and A&M, and she sang demos for songwriters. So this is really kind of how she got her start, and I don't know if you guys know anything about demos, but you know, they somebody writes a song, and then they ask somebody to sing it to so that they can kind of sell the song. And, right. But it's usually they're trying to sell it to you know popular singers, so that's how the, the singer can hear the song and see if they like it. So she right. was the one on those demo tapes. So at A&M Records, she recorded one of her most frequently heard, though uncredited contributions. She sang the backup vocals for the Sandpiper's 1966 hit, Guantanamera. Juanita Guantanamera. Juanita Guantanamera. <laughs> She was one of the busiest voiceover artists in the early 1960s, doing commercials for like Kellogg's breakfast cereal. She was first heard as both Toucan Sam's infant nephews, both of them on these uh, obviously Fruit Loop commercials. She voiced one of the two battling Smackin' Brothers for Sugar Smacks and sang the commercials jingle. So she was really, you know, singing and, and vocalizing these different um, characters that, and these commercials that, you know, some of us might have grown up hearing. Also in the early 60s, so basically she was kind of discovered by the Sherman Brothers. And they brought Lester to the attention of Disney's in-house record label, which was Disneyland Records. And from there, she just basically, like, anything that Disneyland Records was doing, she was on it. <laughs> She yeah. was narrating and singing and, you know, just doing anything that they needed there. She was almost like the in-house person there. So you can hear her as a narrator and singer in, uh, you know, the story and song of the Haunted Mansion album. That's along with uh, Thurl Ravenscroft and Ron Howard. You can hear her singing the song um, Hippity Hop from the Disney album Peter Cottontail and Other Funny Bunnies. She provided the voice of Piglet on some of the early Winnie the Pooh records. And beginning in 1965, she was the quote-unquote Disneyland story reader on records where she read the stories, acted out all the parts in the story, and reminded children to turn the page in their accompanying booklet. So this is her famous phrase, which I wanted to have Chris play here so you guys can just have a little bit of a, a flashback. But... 
you know, she talked about when Tinkerbell um, rings her bell, you turn the page. This is a Disneyland original little long playing record, and I am your story reader. You can read along with me in your book. You will know it is time to turn the page when Tinkerbell rings her little bells like this. Let's begin now. So the authors of this book titled Mouse Tracks, the story of Walt Disney Records, they have a quote about her that I just wanted to read because I thought it was uh, pretty encompassing of who she was to the Walt Disney Records. It is impossible to calculate how many lives Robbie Lester touched by singing, acting, and narrating on more individual Disneyland records than any other performer. And, you know, like they're saying, you know, us as kids, I mean, Chris and I were listening to these records, so we were definitely listening to her and not even really knowing that it was her. <laughs> One of her most famous roles was as Miss Jessica in the Rankin-Bass TV special, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. And Miss Jessica is a school teacher who then becomes, later in the, the film, Miss Kris Kringle. And she sings a song called My World is Beginning Today as this character in the, in the show. And it's, it's a really good scene. And I really like Santa Claus's coming to town because it kind of tells you the story of how Santa became Santa. So she, other than uh, providing the singing voice for Duchess, she also does, again, for Ava Gabor, she is the singing voice of Miss Bianca. And her storyteller album for the Aristocats was actually nominated for a, a Grammy Award in 1970. So um, a couple of other things I wanted to mention. She had some other vocal performances. Another one that she did for Disney was The Three Lives of Thomasina, although I couldn't find exactly what she did in that I film. I think she sang the, the song. The theme at the song? Beginning, the theme song mm-hmm. at the beginning okay. of the movie, yeah. Okay. Written by Terry Gilkison, mm. Who we'll talk about later. Yeah. <laughs> So she did vocal performances for films House of Bamboo and then Lisbon, uh, The Famous Adventures of Mr. Magoo, The City That Forgot About Christmas, Devlin, The Funny Company, and she also had uncredited vocals for other films and television shows, including The Sword of Alibaba, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, That Girl, and Night Gallery. She spent her final years fundraising and crusading for animal rights, and she published two novels titled The $20 Christmas and Heaven's Gift. Her last vocal performance was in 2002 for the Adventures in Odyssey radio series, and she passed away due to cancer June 14, 2005. But I did think this was actually kind of a funny thing. She Her autobiography was published in 2006, and the title of it is Lingerie for Hookers in the Snow, an audiography of a voice artist. So that sounds really interesting. I think I'd like to read that. <laughs> That's wild. <laughs> what does I that know. mean? <laughs> I don't know. That's why it's like, what? What is this about? <laughs> so after the scales and arpeggios happen, uh, we cut away to Edgar again, who is uh, cooking up some mischief and literally cooking a meal for the kittens and duchess. And he puts in a whole bottle of sleeping pills into this uh, milk that he's heating for that. It's actually cream with vanilla and, and they call it cream de la cream a la Edgar. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. It's his special recipe, but normally it doesn't include a whole bottle of sleeping pills. Right. <laughs> uh, but he brings it out because he's planning on abducting the cats, obviously, because of the whole Will situation. And a little tiny mouse appears from behind the wall, and his name is Ropefurt. And yeah. he is a, a friend to the Arista cats because they're much too sophisticated to, to uh, attack mice. And yeah. he, he uh, asks if he can join them for their meal. So he brings a, it looks like a Ritz cracker with him and dunks it in the, in the milk. And he too partakes in this uh, uh, drugged milk. And uh, they all quickly fall asleep, including uh, Ropefurt, who was on his way to get another cracker and didn't quite make it all the way before yeah. <laughs> he conked out. So I'll talk about Sterling Holloway. He was born Sterling Price Holloway in 1905, and he appeared in over 100 films and 40 television shows and he was a prolific and highly recognized actor for the Disney Studios, doing many, 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 many famous roles, and all in the same voice. He had a very distinctive <laughs> yeah. voice. He never changed it for any of the characters that he did. Uh, he was born in Georgia, and... Uh, he attended the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, where he befriended uh, actor Spencer Tracy before either of them were famous. And in the uh, late 20s and early 30s, he started doing bit parts in various uh, films and on stage. And he started doing singing and he sang a very famous song in 1925 which you may or may not have heard of i know it called mountain greenery do you know that song ruthie I in not our by the title mountain anyway. greenery where god paints the scenery da, da. well he he it is a very well-known american standard and he introduced that song he was the first person to sing that famous song um he would appear with fred mcmurray barbara stanwick lon chaney clark gable always in supporting parts he's sort of an odd looking definitely a character type not the leading man type whatsoever <laughs> so uh he came to the attention of disney um when they were um doing snow white in the seven dwarfs he was considered to play the role of Sleepy, but they chose Pintle Govig instead, who was the voice of Goofy. Um, but his first role for Disney was in 1941, where he played Mr. Stork in Dumbo. And that followed in 19... That's a really memorable part, of course. Yeah. And following in 1942, he was the adult voice of Flower in Bambi. 
And then he was the narrator, and he did several different narration things over the years for Disney. But the first time he served as a narrator was in The Three Caballeros, where he narrated the um, Antarctic penguin sequence. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then in Make Mine Music, he narrated Peter and the Wolf. And as a matter of fact, he would come back to do Peter and the Wolf as a narrator for Disneyland Records. So you'd always hear him on the record album version of Peter and the Wolf also. He, of course, was the Cheshire Cat in uh, Alice in Wonderland. And 1952 was a big year. He did three things for Disney in 1952. He narrated The Little House, and he narrated Susie, The Little Blue Coop, two classic Disney shorts that are sort of companions because they're both about inanimate things that have personalities through the magic of Disney. And then, of course, he came back and he reprised his role as the stork, in Lambert the Sheepish Lion in 1952. And he was also the narrator, so he served as both narrator and the stork in that short. Mm -hmm. And then he came back again in 1966 for Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree, the very first yep. Winnie the Pooh short, where he played the lead part. Winnie the Pooh, probably his most famous role for Disney. Not to yeah. downplay any of his other roles, because he really did have some memorable roles other than Pooh. One yeah. of them, of course, being Ka, the snake from the Jungle Book. And, of course, Ropefort from the Aristocats. Of course, anybody with a voice like his would have to have his start on radio. And he was involved in numerous radio programs starting in the 40s. And uh, he was in the Railroad Hour, United States Steel Hour, Suspense, Lux Radio Theater. These were all, you know, guest performances. But he had... Uh, character roles in Fiver McGee and Molly, a famous radio program sitcom that another person involved with this, uh, with the Aristocats was also involved in. Um, he would appear on various sitcoms and different uh, drama as a, a, you know, as a guest appearance like The F Troop. Peter Gunn, The Twilight Zone, The Andy Griffith Show, you know, all those classic shows he would be a guest. And uh, he um, died in 1992 from cardiac arrest, unfortunately, but he left behind a huge legacy, and he's one of the most memorable characters, voice actors from Disney, and He's completely, like, you can't think of Disney without hearing his voice. He's so just a part of Disney in so many ways. And, in fact, Jim Cummings has been mimicking him ever since because the yeah. roles of Winnie the Pooh and Ka the Snake have lived on through Jim Cummings, who does a perfect uh, Sterling Holloway imitation basically. Mm -hmm. He's imitating Sterling Holloway to do those parts, so the characters live on, and they still sound like Sterling Holloway today. So that is Sterling Holloway, and uh, 
So what happens is, after the cats fall asleep and Roquefort falls asleep, uh, Edgar gathers up the cats, puts them in a basket, and gets on his motorbike, complete with sidecar, sticks the basket in the sidecar, and starts uh, uh, sputtering through the streets of Paris with the mission of taking them out to the countryside and leaving them there so that they will be forever lost and he will be the sole inheritor of Madame's fortune. So it's sort of a funny scene where he's traveling through the streets of Paris and every time his motorcycle backfires, his hat goes flying in the air in, <laughs> in perfect conjunction with his... And he drives past the police station and gets all freaked out because he's not a professional criminal by any right. means. Right, and, and uh, the other thing is, he does not know how to drive that motorcycle. <laughs> no, not very well. He's all over the place. <laughs> right. Now, let's sort of stop here and get into a little bit about how stupid he is as a character. <laughs> because this is sort of a good point, a good point in our little discussion here to talk about how short-sighted and stupid he is to even think to do this. This whole scheme is ridiculous, and anybody with half a brain would never even think to do this, because if they're cats, obviously he's going to inherit the money, not the cats, because he's going to be the one taking care of the cats. So basically, she's leaving him his for her fortune immediately. There's just one stipulation. He has to take care of her cats until they die. Right. Big deal. They can't spend the money. Hire so. <laughs> someone to be your butler and take care right. of the cats. You know? Because you'll have oh access to all that money. So, yeah. and the other thing is, cats, what do they live? Like 12 years tops? 15. 15? Yeah. One of them at is the already an adult cat. Right. So, I mean, and Ma the other thing is, Madam is not at death's door. It's not like right. she's going to die tomorrow. So she yeah. might even die, you know, after the cats die. Right. So the whole plan is pointless and ridiculous. It doesn't make any <laughs> sense and it annoys me. And I never well, thought of it as a kid. But re-watching it as an adult, I was so annoyed. I was so I... annoyed by his whole <laughs> lack of... Like, his short-sightedness and total lack of understanding the situation. Yeah. And the other thing is, even if it did make sense, obviously he's going to be the first person that they link it to when anybody starts investigating. Right. Um, and which is later on, they have like a, a, there's like a headline, a newspaper headline, which doesn't make sense. Um, yeah. But... One of the things that I was thinking of is he is basically kind of like the anti-Cruella because he has a little bit of a mania, but it's it's different. So Cruella is obsessed with having this Dalmatian coat and she will stop at nothing to get that coat and, and however whatever she needs to do, whatever it takes to get that coat made, she needs to have it. He is the opposite. He doesn't really want to kill these cats. Because no. if he wanted to, he could have. 
Right. He has access to them. He could have just, uh, you know, threw them in the water or something like that. Like, yeah. he he didn't really want to kill them because he just put sleeping pills in their milk and then kind of wants to just drop them off in the country and have them, like, walk away and just live a different life. So that's the other thing. Like, I don't... He may not like them very much, but he he just does his job and, and does what he needs to do. But it's the whole idea of the money that kind of just makes him a little bit crazy, which I will give him a little bit of a benefit of the doubt, which is why he's not thinking clearly based on like your whole idea of what you're saying about why, why isn't he just thinking that about these, the reality of the situation? Like, when is she going to die? How long are these cats really going to live? You know, that kind of a thing. He can't think clearly because he's just blinded by greed. So that's kind of what I saw. Even And even as blind by greed that he is, he's still not willing to go as far as to kill. As a villain, he's not really a villain. He's sort of a, on the weaker side of villains, both yes. for lack of brains and right. lack of evil. And so, he's not, yeah. and see, his this plot is, why, is not that evil. He right. just wants to get them out of the way. Exactly. He doesn't want to hurt them. Right. And this is why, like, in the original story, even, like, the the first story, before Walt started wanting to kind of direct it more towards the cats, it was about the butler and the maid. And they were kind of like these bumbling idiots, kind of like a Horace and Jasper thing. And the reason why Horace and Jasper worked is because they had a Cruella to play off of. Right. And here, that's what they we're missing in this story. They weren't the masterminds. Right. They were just the heavies. They were just doing her dirty work. But she was the one driving everything. And that's what's really missing here is there isn't really a driving villain. So you kind of almost in a way feel like you can kind of feel sympathy for him a little bit. So while he's uh, driving into the countryside, his plans are sort of interrupted by two dogs. <laughs> and this yes. whole sequence was added after Walt was involved in it. This was all new stuff that they came up with to add more comedy and adventure and and to slapstick basically to the whole the whole story and it doesn't really advance the plot but it's just a fun sequence yeah in fact the sequence was so popular with the animators and the staff they added a second round later mm -hmm. in the movie but what we we meet two dogs that are sort of farm dogs, I guess, and they have Southern American accents, which doesn't make <laughs> any sense. Right. And they are again named after two famous French French people, yes. soldiers, Napoleon <laughs> and Lafayette. Now, Pat Buttram was also somebody who was on Green Acres, of course, so he knew. Eva Gabor very well and they were good friends and that may or may not have led to him getting involved with this but this was his first uh, role with Disney and it led to several more future projects with Disney Pat Buttram played Napoleon who was sort of the leader of the two the more bossy of the two mm -hmm. and uh, 
He was born Maxwell Emmett Buttram, and Pat was his nickname, in 1915 in Alabama, where else? Because if, <laughs> if you hear him talk, he's obviously from the South. And beginning in 1944, he started appearing in countless B-Westerns in different supporting roles. And he continued to appear in Westerns throughout the 50s, 60s, and even into the 70s. He was originally hired during the 40s by Roy Rogers to be a, a new sidekick. But he was very quickly dropped because Rogers already had two other sidekicks and they just felt like he didn't need another one. So why'd you ask me in the first place? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, but fo fortunately following this Gene Autry, who was sort of the, the rival singing cowboy, they were both singing <laughs> cowboys. Yeah. He took him up as his sidekick. And he became, actually, this was sort of the first thing that Pat Buttram became famous for was as Gene Autry's wisecracking, goofy sidekick. And he appeared in a few Gene Autry films before they moved to radio and TV. And he was on Gene Autry's radio show as his sidekick called Melody Ranch and then on the Gene Autry show on TV. Of course, he played uh, Mr. Haney, Mr. Eustace Haney, if you didn't know his first name, on Green <laughs> Acres. And he was sort of a con man, and he was always trying to sell Jim Douglas some, like, broken down machinery or something. And always <laughs> trying to do some sort of a scheme. And he was lazy and didn't like to work. And he was just a really silly character, sort of a... Not a bad guy, but, you know, sort of a nefarious character, not very trustworthy. Mm. Penny, you know, he he would steal a candy from a baby type person. Oh, uh -huh. So anyways, uh, his first thing he did for Disney was uh, the role for the Aristocats. But then, of course, he went on to be the Sheriff of Nottingham's voice in mm -hmm. Robin Hood. And then he was one of the Swamp Critters from the rescuers he was luke one of the different swamp creatures in 1977 and then he was the voice of chief from the fox and the hound the older dog for um amos slade in the fox and the hound and then he came back years later and played uh one of the bullets you know when uh yeah Eddie is going into Toontown and he pulls out bullets and they all have like cowboy voices. He played one of the bullets. And then he also played the master of ceremonies at, at Lester Possum's Possum Park in the Goofy <laughs> movie. And, you know, throughout his career, he was a regular on various sitcoms. And another one thing I thought that was sort of a big deal was he was in a cameo role in Back to the Future Part 3. You know, the yep. one that takes place during the Old West? Yeah, the Old West. I know in exactly the scene that he's in. And he was yep. Jeb, and he was a saloon patron during that scene. And he yeah. died of kidney failure in 94 at the age of 78. Now, the other dog was Lafayette, and he was played by George Lindsay. 
and he was the he was sort of he had long ears and he would always step on them and fall over it was kind of a running gag in the movie and uh, so George Smith Lindsay his middle name was Smith which is a weird middle name was born on December 17th 1928 again where else but Alabama and he was in the US Air Force and was honorably discharged and became a high school teacher so even though you think of him as sort of a dimwit he actually was pretty well educated he uh, began doing stand-up comedy in the late 1950s and he actually his first television appearance was in 1960 he appeared on the game show to tell the truth where they would have three people stand up and pretend to be somebody they're not and you had mm -hmm. to guess who was two of the people were lying and the other person was telling the truth and you had to guess who was telling the truth and he was pretending to be a spear fisherman but <laughs> he was one of the ones who was lying but he he was actually a nightclub comic so um he was in two broadway plays wonderful town and all american and he moved to la in 1962 and started um being on various tv shows as a guest star but his breakout role was the uh part of goober on the <laughs> andy griffith show which he started appearing on in 1964 and he was actually gomer pyle's cousin played by jim neighbors of course and when Jim Neighbors left the show to do his spinoff, which was Gomer Pyle USMC, he sort of took over the role that Gomer Pyle once had as the dimwit, you know, friend. Mm -hmm. So he was on the show from 1964 until it went off the air, but then it continued on once Andy Griffith left the show. It stayed on the air, but the name of the show changed to May Mayberry RFD, and he stayed on the show, and it didn't go off until 1972. So he was wow. on that show basically for eight years, playing the same part of Goober. And then when <laughs> when when uh, Mayberry RFD was canceled, he moved over to Hee Haw, which was a syndicated sort of a sketch comedy show sort of like laugh-in for the south and they mm -hmm. always had like guest performers playing country music but it was more of a, a comedy show and he became a regular on that show until 1989 can you believe it ran until 1989 that's crazy yeah <laughs> but he was involved in hee-haw so in addition to the Aristocats, he appeared in other Disney roles on and off screen, uh, including Snowball Express, Charlie and the Angel. Uh, he was also in Robin Hood. He played one of the vultures named Trigger. He was in the live action movie The Treasure of Matacumbe. And he was in. He was also one of the swamp critters in the Rescuers in 1977. He was the rabbit. He did the voice of the rabbit, whose name was Deadeye, but you don't hear his <laughs> name in the movie. But but he passed in 2012. 
in Nashville, Tennessee from heart failure. He was 83. After Edgar and the two dogs get at it in a very hilarious chase sequence. Yes. In which during the whole scuffle, he loses his sidecar. The basket falls out by a bridge and his he loses his umbrella and his hat and narrowly escapes. And uh, <laughs> we cut to the basket where the kittens and duchess have been stranded in the middle of nowhere and it starts to rain and uh, all looks hopeless until the next day when it is a beautiful sunshiny morning and duchess locates all of her kittens everyone's safe and we hear somebody singing in the distance and the song he sings is called Abraham DeLacy, Giuseppe Casey, Thomas O'Malley, The Alley Cat, which was written by Terry Gilkison, who wrote a lot of songs for Disney, including another song sang by the same person who did the voice of this character called The Bare Necessities from the Jungle Book, you may have heard of. And we mentioned earlier he wrote Thomasina, who Robbie Lester sang. So it's all it all ties in somehow. Yeah. So, uh, of course, we're talking about Thomas O'Malley, voiced by Phil Harris. And this is the second voice role that he did for Disney. And it was uh, one of the reasons why people are always comparing this to The Jungle Book mm -hmm. is because they both star Phil Harris. I like a chicha chicha roni like they make at home on a healthy fish with the big backbone. I'm Abraham DeLacy. Giuseppe Casey. Thomas O'Malley O'Malley the alley cat I've got that wanderlust Gotta walk the scene Gotta kick up highway dust Feel the grass that's green Gotta strut them city streets Showing off my clad Yeah Telling my friends of the social elite or some cute cat I happen to meet that I'm Abraham DeLacy, Giuseppe Casey, Thomas O'Malley O'Malley the alley cat I'm king of the highway Prince of the Boulevard Duke of the Avant-Garde The world is my backyard So if you're going my way That's the road you want to see Calcutta to Rome Or home sweet home in Paris Monofiki you all Got myself and this big old world 
I sip that cup of life with my fingers curled. I don't worry what road to take. I don't have to think of that. Whatever I take is the road I make. It's the road of life. Make no mistake for me. De Lacy, Giuseppe Casey, Thomas O'Malley, O'Malley, the alley cat. That's right, and I'm very proud of that. Yeah. So, should we get into who Phil Harris was? Yeah. He was born Wonga Philip Harris. You heard me right, Wonga <laughs> Philip Harris on June 24th, 1904, and his unusual first name, Wanga, is from a Cherokee word that means fast messenger. Hmm. I don't know. He's not part Cherokee. He might be. I, yeah, I didn't maybe. get... Maybe. Who knows? But that's where... But, of course, everyone called him Phil. <laughs> Because <laughs> he probably didn't like being called Wanga. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, he was born in Indiana, but he grew up in Nashville. And he always said, I'm a Southerner, even though he wasn't mm. technically born in the mm -hmm. South. He was raised in the South. And interesting, both of his parents were circus performers. So he had that... Uh, acting performance bug in his in his genes and he began his career in music as a drummer and then later he formed his own orchestra and played as a re the regular orchestra at the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco beginning in the late 1920s Hmm. And he did this with his partner, Carol Loftner. The partnership ended in 1932, and then Harris started his own band and played it mostly in Los Angeles area. And he married an actress named Marsha Ralston in 1927, and they adopted a son together in 1935, who was named Philip Harris Jr., and they divorced in 1940. But... And the reason I'm bringing up his personal life is because it sort of pertains to the whole story of his career. Because he married a famous actress one year later named Alice Faye. And they did some things together that I'm going to mention in a minute that are sort of important. And they remained married until his death in 1995. So they were a long time married. Um, in 1933... He made a short film for RKO. And back then they used to make these little short films where they would show an orchestra playing and they would just basically sing a song. And he did one of those and it was called So This Is Harris. And he actually won an Academy Award for that for Best Short Subject for 1933. And he became the musical director of the Jello Show starring Jack Benny in 1936 and the Jack Benny show became the number one radio show in America for years and years it was a huge thing it was think of um, Game of Thrones for 1936 mm. it was like the biggest thing on broadcast at that mm -hmm. time so 
Harris ended up becoming part of the cast because he had this knack for giving snappy one-liners, as I'm sure you are well aware by listening to the roles he did for Disney. He just had this natural gregarious uh, thing about him that was... uh, You just wanted to hear him talk. He just had this natural thing that... And uh, so he became a part of the regular cast and would be on basically every episode just saying funny things to Jack Benny, a little back and forth. And one thing I thought was funny is he would call Jack Benny Jackson. He would would (laughs) always refer to him as Jackson. And in the 40s, because of that, um, it became sort of a slang to call anybody you're addressing a Jackson. Like, what's mm. the action, Jackson? What's oh, up, Jackson? Uh-huh. That all came from him calling Jack Benny Jackson. Mm. So he invented a slang term. That's how famous he was on this show. That was really... Everyone, everyone watching these movies in the 70s and in the 60s, that was of our age, Ruthie, mm-hmm. that was 47 <laughs> years old in 1967 when this came out. We all remembered him from back mm-hmm. when he was on the Jack Benny show because that's when we were, you know, we were alive back then remembering this. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people remembered him from those days. So he um, and his entire band were enlisted in the U.S. Navy in 1942. And they wow. went around playing music as oh, that's cool. to serve for the war. That's how they did their service, is they provided entertainment. Um, and when he returned, he and uh, Alice Fay began co-hosting a radio program. And it was a comedy variety program that followed the Jack Benny show. And that ran from 1946 to 1948. And then after that went off the air, he did a show called the Phil Harris Alice Faye Show, which ran until 1954. So he basically did a radio show with his wife for eight years. Wow. And he continued to appear on the Jack Benny Show during all that as well from 1948 to 1952. So he made guest appearances. He's continued to work with Jack Benny during all of that. Now, his signature song, which is not really well known today, but back then, this was the song everybody knew him for most, was a song he sang called That's What I Like About the South. And uh, it's sort of, you know, whenever he was on a talk show or whatever, that's the song they would play when he walked in, because that Mm -hmm. was sort of his song. In 1950, he had a number one record with a song called The Thing. And I listened to it the other day, and it's weird because they never say the word The Thing. (laughs) Every time they come to that point in the song, they clap three times. They'd say, that's the, instead of saying the thing. So it's it's a very unusual song. Apparently it was number one on, it was a number one hit record of 1950. Mm -hmm. It sort of reminds me of like a Perry Como song from them, like hot diggity, dog diggity, Mm. you know, that type of music. 
Uh-huh. It wasn't really a... I listened to it the other day, so it's not it's not da- that danceable, to be quite oh, honest. Okay. It's more of just like a toe-tapping song, if, if oh. anything. Mm-hmm. So he be, he continued to make frequent TV appearances, supporting roles in movies, and of course he recorded albums and toured with his band. I mean, he was most famous for being a perform like a musical performer, and the acting was just sort of of, of a side thing. Mm-hmm. Walt Disney wanted him for Baloo in the Jungle Book, and it took a lot of coaxing, but he decided to give it a shot. And nobody would, the Jungle Book wouldn't have been the same without him. So when they did the Aristocats, of course, he came back and did O'Malley. And then he returned in 1973 to do Little John in Robin Hood. Now, interestingly, and I didn't realize this, the original plan was for him to do the role of Baloo for the TV series Tailspin. But after a few recording sessions, uh, he was replaced, and they never used any of the stuff he recorded. And they ended up being voiced by somebody else who was sort of mimicking Phil Harris, named Ed Mm -hmm. Gilbert. So I don't know what went down. Mm. Sounds like some things went down. Maybe he didn't sound like Baloo anymore as much. Well... I think something went down because his final film role, this is why I think that, his final film role was for rival animation studio Don Bluth Mm. for the 1990 film, our favorite, Ruthie, (laughs) (laughs) Rock-A-Doodle. And uh, Phil Harris died of a heart attack, unfortunately, in uh, 1995. So... When he meets up with Duchess and the Kittens, he doesn't notice that there's kittens there, and he's singing a song all about himself and all the many different names that he has for all the different countries he's traveled all around Europe. Abraham, which is a Middle Eastern name, De Lacy, Giuseppe, which is a, a Italian name, so he's got all these different ethnic names. And then, of course, Thomas O'Malley, which is, I guess that's his Irish name. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> his Scottish name. Anyway, uh, he uh, notices that Duchess is there and starts singing to her along the song. Now, there was a different song that was planned to be as part of this instead of Thomas O'Malley Cat. And it was called My Ways the Highway. And it was written by the Sherman Brothers. My Ways the Highway Under the beautiful skyway On me on a rolling stone That's me My Ways the Highway Even a desolate byway Fascinates me curiosity Where every highway ends I got happy host of friends And the parties always start When I come around That's true And all the fun I found In every village or town And every highway leads to a village or town (laughs) So my way's the highway Under the beautiful skyway And should someday a lady make me care 
might even tarry, but no, I'd never marry, for my way's the highway for fair. And the parties always start when I come around You best believe it And all oh, the fun I found In every village or town And every highway leads to a village or town <laughs> So my way's the highway Under the beautiful skyway And should someday a lady make me care I might even tarry no, I'd never marry. <laughs> for my ways, the highway for fair. Interestingly, there is a song on the 1971 Disneyland record album, The Orange Bird, uh, The Little Orange Bird, the one from Walt Disney World's Sunshine Pavilion in Adventureland. They had a record album telling his story. Uh, narrated and sung by Anita Bryant. And one of the songs cut from the Aristocats, My Way's the Highway, was uh, had the lyrics slightly rewritten, and the new title of the song was I'll Fly the Skyway. And it appeared on that 1971 album. So we're going to end it there with Abraham DeLacy, Giuseppe Casey, Thomas O'Malley, and we're going to continue on with the rest of the story and the rest of the cast and the further adventures of the Aristocats in our part two episode coming in a few weeks. Over the beautiful highway On my own a rolling stone I'll be Far nicer places Friendlier, happier faces Are waiting down the skyway Just for me And where the highway ends I'll make some brand new friends And oh, the fun we'll have When I flutter down No one will think it absurd That I'm an orange bird Unable to speak a word Or order a sound Oh, I'll fly the skyway, follow the beautiful highway Till I find some friendly company My heart is full of elation at the wonderful vacation Waiting down the skyway for me And where the highway ends, I'll make some brand new friends And oh, the fun we'll have when I flutter down No one will think it absurd that I'm an orange bird Unable to speak a word or utter a sound Oh, I'll find the skyway, follow the beautiful highway Till I find some friendly company My heart is full of elation at the wonderful vacation Waiting down the skyway for me
So that was episode number 129 of the Jiminy Crickets podcast. Ruthie, where can everybody find Jiminy Crickets on the web? You can listen to all of our past shows, including audio versions of Dateline Jiminy Crickets on our website, jcricketpodcast.blogspot.com. You can also listen to us on iTunes under the name Jiminy Crickets. That's with an exclamation point. And be sure to leave us a five-star review. On our YouTube channel, we share updates to the Disney Chris website, including the Disneyland Magical Audio Tour, as well as past episodes of the Jiminy Crickets podcast and Dateline Jiminy Crickets. You can find our channel if you search for DisneyChris.com. And remember, .com is spelled out D-O-T-C-O-M. And don't forget to subscribe and click on the notification bell. You can also join in the conversation over on our Facebook page, Jiminy Crickets Podcast where you can not only interact with Chris and me and all the fellow cricketeers, but you can also stay up to date on all the latest details of our many worldwide web endeavors. In addition to all the normal places you have always found our podcast, you can now also find us over at the Roarbots, a unique website celebrating all aspects of geek culture, including Disney fandom. Here we share all of our new episodes twice monthly, as well as special best of episodes from our extensive back catalog of shows. We are proud to be a part of this motley crew of pop culture superfans, so be sure to check out this amazing website at www.theroarbots.com. If you would like to contact the show with your comments or questions, our email address is disneychrisdotcom at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also find us on Instagram. Our official Instagram account is at disneychris underscore jc underscore podcast. There are hundreds of colorful vintage Disney images on our page, and we are continually adding more Disney fun things to see. And it's also a great place to get updates to our podcast and the Disney Chris website. So be sure to follow us on Instagram today. You can find me on Twitter at DisneyChris73, and on Facebook, Ruthie can be found under the name Ruthie Brown, and I can be found under the name Chris Linden. That's L-Y-N-D-O-N, as in Lyndon Johnson. My website is DisneyChris.com, home to the Disney Song of the Day and the Disneyland Magical Audio Tour, where you'll find over 2,000 audio tracks from the happiest place on Earth. We'd like to give special thanks to those who help spread our magic with their generous support. And you too can help support Dateline Jiminy Crickets, the Jiminy Crickets podcast, and the Disney Chris website by becoming a Patreon subscriber. By joining our illustrious roster of supporters, you will receive exclusive rewards every month, including audio content, Disney video commentaries, and an exclusive Patreon subscribers-only podcast. Additionally, your name will be featured on screen during the closing credits of each Dateline Jiminy Crickets podcast. Be sure to check out our new donations and special rewards at www.patreon.com slash DisneyChris. And as a reminder, you can also make a one-time only donation or also a recurring donation via PayPal. And recurring PayPal donators 
qualify for the same rewards as our Patreon subscribers. You will find links to all of these donation options at disneychris.com slash donate.html. Do you have any final words for today, Ruthie? Just one. Oh, yeah. Thanks for listening. And always let your conscience be your guide. And your heart is in your dream.